Hi, I'm Chris Wigley, CEO of Genomics England. I've spent my career at the intersection of technology, ethics, and human stories. Now, I lead the amazing team here at Genomics England. We're trying to bring the benefits of genomic medicine to everyone, and that involves accelerating genomic research and also working with the NHS to bring genomics into the heart of healthcare. Genomics is a word that can trigger really strong responses, hope, fear, anger, and there's a lot of information out there, but it's not all accessible to non-experts. And there are some myths out there. So we want to talk more about this word, the G word, genomics. That's what this podcast is about. Welcome to the G word. So it is my huge pleasure to welcome to the GWAD today, Catherine Pollard, who is one of the real thought leaders and people leaders in the space of technology, data, and policy, and how we bring all of these new technologies to bear on better outcomes for patients. Um, Catherine, welcome to the pod. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. That's great. And so you have done a bunch of stuff over the course of your career. Just give us a sense of how Catherine Pollard became Catherine Pollard. So the things I'm going to kind of pick out are some of them are kind of CV points, but I think I'm going to start with the fact that I've, I'm the child of two parents who worked in international development. And therefore, I think one of the kind of things that has framed my outlook on my professional career has been one of making a difference to people. And so while I did start my early career in consulting, I've always been focused on working on public sector problems and really kind of trying to take things that are wicked and intractable and working a way through those. And so that has really shaped almost everything I've done, particularly in the NHS for the last 12 years. And I've in the NHS, I have done such a broad array of kind of roles. I actually feel that that's such a privilege because it means that by and large, I can stand in most people's shoes and kind of see the world from there um, through their eyes. My first job in the NHS was in Tower Hamlets in 2010, um, working with a bunch of GPs um, in East London to work out how we got women who might not, who might be quite reticent about coming in for cancer screening to turn up to their screening appointments and trying to help um, broker some of the, the really tricky relationships and partnerships across the primary care and community sector and social care sector to mean that we could wrap services around either troubled families or um, people who had very complex conditions and were needing really holistic wraparound. So what we now call integration, you know, that was kind of my my first NHS experience. And then kind of since that moment, back in 2010, I've done a real mixture of other operational roles, policy roles, some time at UCLH where I was director of strategy, working in an, uh, the Cambridge and Peterborough Sustainability and Transformation Partnership and kind of landed in NHSX almost two years ago now. And I think, again, the kind of common thread that I would kind of pick out is that also that focus on transformation and really just trying to understand what the barriers are to some of the really positive changes that we want to see. And so over the last few years, I've been focusing on how digital and data is some really critical enablers to the transformation we want to see across the health and social care sector can be unleashed at scale for the benefit of our workforce and, and the benefit of our population. Very cool. And in fact, I'd, I'd forgotten that the letters STP actually stood for something. So Sustainability and Transformation Indeed. Partnership. There you go. That's a blast from the past. Isn't it? Yes. Um, and um, I guess just like STPs 
got shuffled in their day. All of the sort of data technology transformation pieces of the NHS are kind of slightly in flux um, at the moment as we speak. I think the themes around how can we bring these technologies to bear to make the health service better for you know patients and people um, you know definitely endure. It would be great maybe if, speaking as a data nerd and someone who is the custodian of some terrifying amount of data, like 60 petabytes of um, clinical and genomics data. There's obviously all of this other data across you know, patients' lives, across the NHS. Why do we think so and care so much about data? Why is data important in making things better for patients? Big question. Big, big, big question. I mean, kind of coming back to kind of brass tacks and speaking as a non-clinician, but someone who's kind of worked alongside clinicians for a long time. I mean, I think it's largely it's about helping make the, the safest, timeliest, most holistic decision in every single moment where we've got, you know, where, where clinicians are literally holding people's lives in their hands. Um, and so to me, data is about how we can make sure that not only the kind of information and the training that they have in their brains because they've gone through all these years of training, but they've got at their fingertips all of the insight that they need about where that person's come from, ideally like information about their living circumstances and their family history, other anxieties or other related conditions, um, but also all of the kind of benefit of what best clinical best practice would tell you to do or, or you know, some of that kind of pattern analysis that you go can only get when you can look at very, very large populations. And, you know, really what we need to do is make sure that we are putting in front of those clinical teams in those really crucial moments, all of that wisdom in a highly curated way. But kind of doing, saying something as simple as that, like requires huge amounts of kind of work in the backdrop to, you know, extract information, link information, make it available to be analysed and, and have clever people develop clever you know, risk stratification tools and algorithms on it and, you know, then work out how to get that back into the clinicians, you know, into their clinical workflow. But fundamentally, I think, you know, it is literally about ultimately going to be about kind of helping to save lives. You know, medicine is kind of an information business. That's a great um, tagline. And not to be like deliberately provocative. I mean, former Secretary of State Matt Hancock issued a decree saying, right, the NHS is no longer allowed to buy fax machines, right? <laughs> Which made the press a lot at the time. The technology in the NHS has obviously come a long way over the last few years, and we saw some amazing steps forward in the um, in the pandemic. But I guess like big banks or big retailers or whatever, there's a lot of kind of legacy technology around as well, and people still kind of find it stressful to have to like refill in their name, their address or whatever, like when they're going for an, an appointment somewhere new and so on. How can we think about at the same time as doing the more kind of sophisticated stuff, like you were talking about, you know, risk stratification and insights at the fingertips of, um, of doctors. Can we do that at the same time as trying to solve some of those more kind of, I don't know, boring or sort of foundational problems? Um, or do we need to solve the kind of foundational problems first? Like how, how can we think about um, getting to those kind of, let's say, you know, glamorous benefits or sophisticated benefits at the same time? Yeah, I mean, so I think it's a really difficult question and one that NHS and the social care system are constantly facing is how do you transform yourself while also kind of trying to fix some of the, the foundational kind of gaps? And I think the reality is we have to try and like f fight on multiple fronts simultaneously. 
and it, and that's because you know the healthcare system is is you know is huge. It employs one and a half million people, and of the kind of two hundred and fifty NHS trusts that we have, you know, we have some that are incredibly digital mature organisations, and we have some where you know they're they're not quite working on paper, but it, it's not a huge amount better. And we're going to have to kind of you know continue to deal with that level of variation for a good few years yet but um our main focus actually um in terms of certainly our main areas of financial investment over the next three years is going to be on a really big leveling up agenda so addressing the fact that only 20 percent of healthcare institutions have like the requisite level of digital maturity that you would expect them to have and that would you know mean that their staff you know, not spending their time kind of keying in and that they have the information they need at their fingertips. We're going to kind of basically start with the least mature and invest heavily in taking every step of the journey that they need to make over the next two to three years to kind of scope and then secure and then implement an electronic healthcare record. And on the social care side of things, we're going to, you know, we're starting from a even lower base. And so we know we have to do that foundational work. And we know we need to put the emphasis around the kind of requisite cybersecurity and cloud infrastructure, you know, to go alongside this. But in the meantime, we think that we can also start to invest in the right data platforms. That means as we get new data sources come on stream, that will supplement um, the kind of already rich pool of data that we do have from those more mature trusts. And so it's it's going to have to be, we need to work in a dynamic way, basically. The thing though, that I would, I would say that, um, you know, kind of one of the downsides of, of not kind of having that baseline digital maturity is we might think that you end up like losing the, the people who are currently kind of unrecorded in a, in a kind of in a digital way. And so I think one of the things we're incredibly mindful of is how we can make sure that we are continuing to think about, um, particularly in the development of algorithms, that we have really representative populations captured and that we are, you know, spending a lot of time and attention thinking about kind of, you know, sample rep- representativeness, particularly from kind of ethnic diversity and, and geographical diversity. I mean, the good news is that the kind of the digitization map of the of the country doesn't you know doesn't single out any specific kind of place it's not kind of concentrated in a kind of distortive way um so i think we should we should be able to be fairly able to kind of avoid that but it's something that we're also kind of thinking about as being front and center got it and yeah i guess that whole point about you know equity of access one of the you know foundational principles of the NHS, right, and sort of runs through it like the the writing in a stick of rock or whatever. You've touched on a few things there that I want to double click on, but maybe actually if we pick up first on this point about diversity of data, this is something that at Genomics England we're very passionate about. Historically, there have been issues about the data sets being overly dominated with people of sort of European ancestry. The pandemic really highlighted a bunch of issues around inequality, particularly the one that really stuck in my mind was a chart showing that there was an almost perfect uh, inverse correlation between your salary um, and how likely you were to die if you caught COVID was just like horrendous. As we think about bringing the benefits of better technologies, more sophisticated treatments and so on to um, everyone, and you touched on this earlier a bit around your experience in Tower Hamlets, and then we saw things like vaccine hesitancy and so on. From an NHS perspective, how can we make sure everyone's invited, everyone's kind of coming on this journey? 
Yeah, I mean, like that's, and that's something we're thinking about a lot as we kind of really um, uh, focus on our kind of citizen-centered channels and our kind of citizen offer. What what does citizen-centered channels mean? Well, I guess in its kind of basic concept, it's what channels are available to the NHS to talk to patients directly. And historically, um, the letter has been our preferred channel of communication. We still give a lot of money to Royal Mail, so, you know, good on us. Um, and, you know, and then it became the text message. I mean, it worked, worked very well through the pandemic, right? The text message was the basis of the vaccine rollout, yeah? Yeah, brilliantly. And then, you know, increasingly then it's, you know, we, we, we can do things on websites, you know, and, and obviously anyone who's gone in to try and um, upload their COVID test results or indeed, you know, book their vaccination, that's obviously all done by the web. And then we've then got the kind of app. So that is a multi-channel offering and, and, and in terms of communication. And then obviously there is kind of all the face-to-face elements of kind of coming into what interacting with the NHS and whatever clinical setting that is, be it a pharmacy in your home, be it, you know, in a hospital. We will always be a multi-channel service. Um, bricks and mortar will be incredibly important for, you know, forever and be where we spend most of the kind of emphasis in terms of our investment. But we think that we can do more through the digital channels that we've got, and particularly as kind of technology advances, um, if we design how those channels are kind of constructed rightly, we actually can help get underrepresented communities and people who have struggled to access services, actually help them access services because they're doing it at a point in time that's convenient to them. We've got much more opportunities around language um, and kind of doing things also in, you know, more either more visually rather than kind of having things done in through perhaps hard to um, engage with or hard to interpret, you know, dense words. You know, there's all sorts of things that kind of digital, I think, offers if we get it right. Um, But it's always going to be part of that mixed channel kind of strategy, right? It's interesting, you mentioned bricks and mortar. And um, I was thinking, yeah, for sure, if you're having a, you know, heart bypass operation or something, that is something you want to, you know, to use the banking metaphor, come into the branch for, right? but then I thought actually giving birth is quite a full on and, you know, speaking as a father of three <laughs> process. And actually that's something that is reasonably routinely done at home. Right. So actually it's, it's interesting this, where can we push the boundaries about what, what does need to be in a hospital? What, what doesn't just briefly on the app. I don't know if you, if you know these numbers off the top of your head, it's a kind of unfair question to just spring on you, but um, I'm assuming that because of COVID status and everything else on the app that, there must have been a massive upsurge in usage of the app um, over the course of the last couple of years. If, if you know those numbers, great. If, if not, more generally, like, what does that, what opportunities does that create for new ways of, of interacting and I guess having a dialogue with patients? So we're now at 26 million. Wow. There you go. So I do know the numbers. <laughs> um, and, I think, and I think we were about 2 million in May. Wow. So... <laughs> Like COVID certification, um, I think the COVID certification function in the app is the most used COVID certification function globally. And the app was the most downloaded app in the app store last year in the UK. Wow. Yes. But our challenge now is how do we kind of, we were talking about this this morning. It's about stickiness, right? People, we have provided a service that people have found useful because it is essential to our way of living in a post- or kind of peri-pandemic yeah. moment. 
Um, but there is so much more opportunity. So we need to make it really useful from a kind of transactional perspective. You need to be able to kind of book appointments and get information you need and interact with the clinicians are caring for you in a, you know, an asynchronous manner. So to be able to message them and have them message you back. We need to be able to make sure that it's kind of surfacing information that's tailored to your needs. So if you need to have be invited to a screening appointment or a health check, it's got the right kind of reminders. And then, and as we, you know, start to kind of get to grips with the really, really vibrant digital health technology or digital therapeutic kind of ecosystem that we've had all of these innovators busy, you know, creating. Um, as we become clear on which ones of those have got like the best evidence and nice start to say, yeah, actually, you know, these things, you know, de deserve a, you know, a tech guideline and need to be part of the core NHS offer. We need to make sure that, you know, you don't need to log in multiple different ways and have lots of different accounts. And so to create those interfaces between, you know, the NHS and its trusted brand into kind of other types of applications, potentially even Genomics England's. There you go. I mean, <laughs> and and we talk a lot about you know it's not our data, it's their data, right? It's not it's not genomics England's data or the NHS's data. It's you know the people's data who we're um, measuring. You know, as a complete nerd about these kind of things, I've been keeping half an eye on the NHS app for a while, and I've I've noticed that just quietly in the background, the the data is getting better, right? It used to be that if I clicked on the thing that said show your historic prescriptions like one popped up from kind of 13 years ago when I'd been prescribed antibiotics or something. Um, and, you know, when I was a teenager and in my 20s, I had asthma, like that wasn't even there. And just somehow in the background, you know, now when I tip on it, there is my historic uh, asthma prescriptions, right? And I never used to be able to get an appointment at my GP practice, which can remain nameless. <laughs> but, uh, you know, just uh, yesterday I booked an appointment on the app and, and being somewhat cynical, I thought, oh, well, let's see if this works, I roll. And hey, presto, it did work, right? <laughs> you know, magic. So it feels like there's been whoever the kind of unsung team is behind that who's, you know, making those things work, like, well done them. In terms of patient power um, or patient uh, agency, let's say, in terms of control over data, consenting into different processes, um, whether those are like clinical processes, research processes, are there any kind of ideas afoot around how we could use the app to kind of empower patients more in that sense? I mean, there's another kind of really big kind of question. And I think you only get the, you only get the big questions on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think actually, before I answer, I'm going to I'm going to kind of take a slight step back. And I think the first thing we need to do, because not everyone is quite a data geek like you are, yep. is actually kind of take a step back and do some kind of much broader engagement, um, both ourselves as the NHS and also working with our partners, particularly people like yourselves and also in the kind of in the charity space and in the third sector. And they actually like, this is what your health data is. Like this is this, the information we have about you. This is how we want to use it to make sure that your personal care is like the best quality care we can possibly make it. And that, as I said, the clinical teams around you have got that kind of 360 perspective and can make, you know, really good decisions in, in kind of in very difficult moments. But also, if you're willing for it, this is how your data could like be a, like the fuel for, you know, new research, new innovation, be it like 
through supporting people who want to look at kind of the correlation between, you know, health outcomes and, and, and you know, the social determinants, albeit, you know, someone who's trying to identify people with a particular rare combination of diseases who might be suitable for a clinical trial to test a new, a new drug. You know, there's lots of like amazing and long-term health promoting applications of data, but I think a lot of people like just don't really think about it. And so one of the things that we're planning to do, and, and it will be a you know, conversation we start and then it continues and continues and continues, is to kind of try and put a lot more out into the open about what sort of data it is, how it can be used, and just in general raise the level of awareness and understanding, you know, of people so that, you know, as and when we can put kind of consent in very much in the kind of hands of people, they're starting from a much like stronger base of kind of understanding the benefits, um, understanding some of the safeguards that we're putting in place around kind of controlling access, but also, you know, should they choose to do something differently, they're clear on both what the consequences are, but they've got that choice. I think there will be a kind of time and a place for kind of opt-outs um, potentially to be made much more sophisticated, much more dynamic, but for the people who want them, because some people, I mean, I don't know what type of person you are in terms of cookies. I always like naively go like accept all, <laughs> but the the life choice to not accept all cookies is like quite a time commitment. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, but like you know, I have also got friends who will read the small print and you know be, go very deliberately, and and I think we're going to need to kind of over time kind of help meet the needs of people who've got all sorts of perspectives. Um, and very much respect people who are incredibly private, but also, you know, hopefully encourage those that are more enthusiastic that their data can support, not only make sure they have safe care, but, you know, future uses and to make sure that that case is made and that they feel that they have that, that level of control and they can, you know, turn it off when they want. So, so yes, but I think we've got some more groundwork to do first. Let me hit you with another big question, which is a sort of ethical question that Someone posed to me recently, and I wasn't quite sure how to answer it, so I'm going to see if you have a good answer that I can steal. People used to talk, and still do, there's this long-established phrase of at the point of um, your death that people used to, like, donate their body to medical science, so to speak, right? You know, and there's the uh, organ donation service through uh, NHSBT and so on. Is there a world in which we could or should be encouraging people to donate their data to science um, after they die? So I guess the interesting question is, why does it have to be after we die? So that would be my first. Yeah, no, I mean, I guess that's like in addition to all of the other uh, ways of engaging people. Yeah. I mean, I'm kind of coming from kind of quite a, um, I guess, a mindset where I I kind of rail against kind of paternalistic or patronizing assumptions around what is in the best interests of other people or, you know, particularly me. Um, I believe strongly in giving people options and, you know, and being very careful about the decision architecture and the choice architecture and certainly making sure that, you know, the options where, um, you know, where potentially quite sensitive information is, you know, is concerned that it is positioned in the most neutral and, you know, well-informed kind of way with, you know, the fullest information about the kind of consequences, but certainly, we know from a public health perspective that most of the drivers of ill health are like sit in the social determinants. So they're about factors to do with like whether someone has a job or too many jobs, you know, the quality of their sleep and like what their kind of working patterns are, their access to clean, clean fresh air and green space and all that good stuff. 
And also we know that the way that people respond to particularly behavioural interventions, of which kind of a lot of healthcare interventions are increasingly kind of reliant on people's behaviour change, there's a lot of insight that we could pick up also from kind of the way people like behave on social media and and all of the kind of that rich picture. And so I can see that there is a would be a huge opportunity if people were willing to to yeah to say actually you know yeah take take everything effectively my Google search history my Facebook my WhatsApps you know the whole lot. But it absolutely has to be a choice. And you know we would this is the sort of thing where you would take very baby steps. You know, we don't need to use real data to start with. I mean, you can start with, you know, taking kind of stuff that's kind of abstract and and so on and, and starting to prove almost like use case by use case. How the data is used, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, we had, um, we had Ben Goldacre on the pod just a few weeks ago who was talking passionately about the concept of building your search query on kind of dummy data and then, running the search query on the real data and getting the results from that, but never having to actually interact with the real data um, at all. So lots of those kind of emerging um, techniques. A quick thought, this is maybe a side note, on, on choice and paternalism in healthcare. I mean, I fell off my bike a year ago, broke my hand, had a series of appointments um, with the follow-up team at um, Thomas's, who were amazing, hand trauma clinic um, team at Thomas's. Thank you. We had a lot of discussions around what should we do about the hand? It was borderline. Should we operate? Should we not operate? And people kept on saying to me, well, what do you think we should do? You know, what would, we used to be very paternalistic and we would just say, well, Mr. Wigley, you should do this. But, you know, we're interested in your view. And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> like, I'm not a hand surgeon. I have no idea what, what the best thing is to do. Like, I really want you to be paternalistic, please. And just tell me what to do. Um, so I think your point is about how can we help people make choices that they've, and, and also help them to feel empowered to make a good choice. Because I definitely felt like I didn't have the basis of making a good choice in that context. But like, how can we, how can we empower people to feel like they're equipped to make good choices? Yeah, but some of, surely some of that is about like asking the right question. So, I mean, if they ask you kind of what matters, like, you know, if your trade-off was effectively being able to, I don't know, go back to keyboard typing within two weeks or being able to ride a bike or catch a ball or, you know, swim or whatever it is, but like in three months, maybe that would be a better conversation to have with you around kind of, you know, what are the things that matter most in your lifestyle that, you know, your hand either being in plaster for quite a long time, but giving you a lot more functionality versus, you know, it might never recover, but, you know, you can, you know, get back to kind of more, something that's equivalent, you know, very similar to your kind of current lifestyle very quickly. Um, and I think, so my, my grandmother is very, very poorly at the moment, but she, so when I worked in Tower Hamlets, um, one of the projects I worked on was the end of life care pathway. And it was heartbreaking to know how many people died in hospital. And when they died in hospital, they would have been in there for six, seven, eight weeks. You know, I'm sure they would have received excellent care. But, you know, many people would not want to, you know, spend their last, you know, days and weeks surrounded by, you know, very lovely, but, you know, not their friends and family and, you know, not kind of being able to look out the window and have fresh air and all of that kind of piece. And like, I am so glad that we've gotten to the point where she's been able to kind of articulate what her end of life care wishes are and that 
and and the, the whole set of services wrap around her and you know talking back to data again there is like an end of life care plan that everyone in her clinical team knows about you know and so there is no risk anymore of people deteriorating getting pulled into hospital at last minute you know and these some of these heartbreaking stories that happen and so i think we can get it right that that kind of that choice and, and not being patronizing that's i think that's that's great to hear we're, I'm conscious we could talk for days about these topics. <laughs> um, maybe just to take us back briefly to this point about how do we bring everyone with us on the journey as, as you know, the whole health service and I guess society more broadly kind of goes through all of these transformations. You are, I think, the convener for a group in um, the east of England called One Health Tech Cambridge. Tell us a little bit about what One Health Tech is doing and how that fits in with kind of, um, I guess, an inclusive approach to to healthcare and health tech and so on? Yeah, so, I mean, One Health Tech is a grassroots movement um, that has been going for, I think, four or five years now, and has kind of stemmed from a community in London to one that now has hubs, as we call them, pretty much, I think, on every continent. No, not on Antarctica, but like on all the, on all the rest of them. <laughs> I'm disappointed, disappointed that Antarctica is not represented. <laughs> yeah, the polar bears, I think, are less keen on inclusion and diversity in health tech, it turns out. But uh, basically, it was set up to try and kind of break down some of the, I guess, the kind of traditional barriers and molds that have like often existed in the health tech community. And to, you know, really try and put um, a really strong voice um, in support of women, people of colour and people, people just in general who have kind of a different opinion to the mainstream. And to make sure that as a community, we're able to offer peer support to each other uh, on kind of practical things, but also to kind of create some different spaces to have some really interesting conversations and so in Cambridge a lot of the the work I did a lot of it was kind of pre-pandemic was trying to kind of bring together what I think I like to think of as kind of the next generation of kind of Nobel Nobel winners uh, to have some really like tricky conversations like we had a like a long debate about kind of the ethics of you know AI in healthcare um, and how do you and how do you kind of deploy AI in in a way that genuinely adds to you know the sum of the the kind of options that we have for treating people you know rather than kind of you know perpetuates distortions and I think what One Health Tech does is is creates a community that spans now as I said lots of countries um, and creates that peer support work that space where we can have great conversations meet like-minded people and so it's been a real pleasure Um, and we've done a lot more online during the pandemic as everyone has um, but things are starting to get back together um, in in kind of um, in real life. And I think I would just encourage, I mean, one of the things I've been really proud of both through One Health Tech and actually NHSX is that point around kind of diversity of discourse and just kind of trying to always create spaces where where people can, with respect, but, you know, put forward new ideas or new perspective and, and kind of seek to improve our collective understanding of different perspectives and and you know so we're always learning very cool and i guess there's also something about people i guess maybe particularly kids young people needing to see role models to feel like you know they're they're included or whatever and so it's, it's great to get that sense of 
um, a diverse population of practitioners, not just kind of supporting each other, but also acting as kind of role models for um, the next generation. And yeah, having members of different communities be kind of in the in the gang, so important for that kind of inkblot effect of feeling that this is not something other and sort of weird that some other group of people do. Yeah. Um, very cool. Catherine, thank you so much for coming onto the pod. Lovely to speak with you and thanks for sharing um, your thoughts on these thorny big questions. Thank you for having me. It's been such a pleasure. Well, that's all for this episode. Thanks for listening to this discussion about the G word and for joining us on this journey to highlight and debate the implications of genomics as it comes to the mainstream of healthcare and society. Remember to subscribe to The G Word on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you have views on these topics, if you have a suggestion for someone we should interview, then do write to us at podcast at genomicsengland.co.uk. And do remember, if you've enjoyed listening, that giving us a five-star review really helps other people find out about the series and appreciate it very much. See you on the next episode of The G Word.